thank our youth for leading us in worship today and and um, turn to Revelation chapter 13 that's where we're going to be this morning in chapter 13 and uh, I'll make sure I get this thing right this week so last week I uh, I couldn't figure out why the mic didn't work in the second service I kept thinking the whole time I never could hear anything and 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 it was feeding back and all kinds of weird stuff I could thought what in the world is going on and then when it was over with, I went to take it off, and I realized it was hanging behind my back because I took it off after the first service. <laughs> and and uh, uh, I can't remember who was in the booth, but they kept trying to turn it up to pick me up, and, it, you know, it's not going to work behind me. It, it only works, like, right there. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, Revelation chapter 13, we're, we're moving on. And remember, these are some very, very um, important chapters as we come in, and, and it kind of sets up the, the last half of the the uh, book. So in verses 1 through 10, John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon, Satan, gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Remember, that's, that's his name, the slanderer, the blasphemer. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance of faith and of the saints. So, the first 10 verses, if we come in, this beast, this first beast that comes up out of the sea represents the government. Now, you know, you go, oh, yes, we're going to get to bash the government today. But, uh, but it, it is. This is who this represents. As you come in, this is who John would, uh, would see as, as he comes in there. So in John's day, the beast from the sea, he would have identified it as rum. You go, well, how are you pulling government out of here? You go back to Daniel chapter 7. This is where this is coming out of. It's almost verbatim out of there. And, and so you come in and you look, represented in Daniel chapter 7, are four kingdoms, the kingdom of, of Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, and the Greeks. So you have these four kingdoms who come in and, and you see them successively. They were the ancient kingdoms. They spanned hundreds of years. And in Rome would be the next one that comes after this. And, and so as you come in in Rome, Rome spans centuries. It had all the same oppressive tendencies of these four other governments coming out before. So John, as he come in, as, as he come in remember John, he sat at the feet of Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He knew 
the, the, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament was his Bible. He knew it very, very well. So as, as he begins to see this and, and, and he sees and, and he begins to see the leopard, you know, and, and so forth coming through there, um, the, and, and the bear and, and the lion, he will automatically flip in and go, okay, I'm familiar with this. I know where he's going with this. I understand this. And, and he would say, you know what? These were the ancient kingdoms, and this is the kingdom that we're fighting against today or, or that is oppressing us or that we have, um, we are taking the gospel to. So Rome represents the world powers that will oppress the people of God until the second coming. Um, so it, it, just like these represented it, so does Rome represent that. To John, it, rep- it would represent that to us. So here we have Satan, uh, it says the, dra- uh, the beast rising up out of the sea, and, and the dragon gives its power to it. So Satan gives his power to the beast. Now, remember, Satan only has what God allows him to have. He doesn't have power outside of what is given to him. He does not have authority over us. He doesn't have authority over God. He, does, he, he is not uh, a kingdom that, that could possibly win. He is defeated. He has lost. He only has what is given to him, and he is a false trinity. And, and um, he, is, uh, he mimics God. He comes in, and he tries to uh, be a false god by doing things that are similar to things that we might see or know. Um, in this chapter, we see that, um, that as, as we come in, he is a false trinity made up of the dragon, the beast um, from the sea and the beast on the earth, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophets. You see these three things happening here as we go through the chapter. But the beast will blaspheme God, will, will slander God, for 1260 days, uh, three and a half years, 42 months, a time, times, and a half a time um, as we come in, and we talked about that a week or two ago. But, but coming in, um, this is something that God, uh, that John would have recognized, he would have seen and understood as he's coming in. So as we come in and, and look, we, we see as, as we come into this, this is um, not only would it be a contemporary thing for John, it's also something that will happen in the future, something that we, um, that, that we will experience in our own lives, in our own world, and, and that ultimately at the conclusion of all things will take place. This, um, this will be the last. This will be the end as, as we come. It will be the final um, thing that happens. We've all seen atrocities in our lifetimes. We see them around our world today. We see these things happening. Um, this will be the last one, and the church has been persecuted from the beginning. This is what we're seeing here in the last the last couple of verses. It says, if anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone's to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Um, so this, <clears throat> this faithful perseverance by the people of God um, is evidence of the power of Jesus over all things that we see. This um, Hebrews 2, 5 through 18, I think really kind of, in, in a, it's a broad piece of scripture, but it really lays it out. It says, for it was to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and power, putting everything in subjection under his feet. 
Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So everything is subject to Jesus, but we don't see that. We don't experience that, but it's real, it's there. And But we see who, him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus experienced life like we've experienced life. He was tempted. He suffered beyond anything we could ever imagine. Yet he never sinned, and he became the propitiation, or he took our punishment on himself and gave us the mercy and grace of God. Um, That's what he did on the cross. So as we come in, the beast from the sea represents the government that wants to be God. It is in conflict with the Son of God, with the Lamb of God. It opposes the people of God, and it opposes the things of God. This is, this is what John would have seen in Rome, that Rome opposes God, opposes the things of God. This is what, when we see Babylon in there, Babylon opposes God, opposes the things of God. There are governments today that oppose God and oppose the things of God. Um, the government has moved from being something for the people to being for itself. It is no longer for the people that it represents or that it gather that gather under its banner, but it is all about its own self. So um, this isn't a political thing. It's just to simply point out very clearly that government is not God. The government is not God. The government is not the one who is going to deliver us. The government is not going to do anything for us spiritually. Nothing. Zip. It can only exist, government can only exist, if God allows it and it has the purpose to serve God. That that is what it is for. Whether it does this or not, that's another issue. But Romans 13 says that God is the one that allows governments to exist. He is the one who puts people into power, and he is the one who takes them out. And when a government steps out from under the rule of God, it becomes demonic. Any government that is not under the rule of God, not under the truth of God, not carrying out its authority according to the plans and purposes of God, is evil. 
just flat out evil. It is self-serving and demonic. So when this happens, the people of God are then seen as troublemakers because they won't go with the status quo. For instance, if you go in countries where Christians are heavily persecuted, why? Because they are a trouble to the powers that are in control or that think that they are in control. They're told things like this. It's fine for you to believe your faith and practice your faith, but you need to do that in private. It has no place in public. Have you heard that? That's, that's been stated very clearly. For instance, um, the, the last two Supreme Court nominations, the last two, there's been questions, there have been questions asked of both about their faith. Because your faith is not welcome in the public arena. That is, that is demonic. That is anti-Christ. It's blasphemous. So when we talk about the government as, as being this beast, this is what's happening. This is when, when our leadership moves from being for the things of God, for the things that God created it for. And I'm not talking about the government teaching a Sunday school class. I'm just talking about managing things for the well-being of the people. It moves into something totally different so we have to be cautious of the government. We just have to be very cautious of them. We have to be cautious of, of building alliances with them and, and, and bringing them into what we have been called to do. And we need to keep our allegiance firmly in the kingdom of God, the sword of the word of God, and the word that comes from Jesus' mouth is the only one that will defeat the beast. The only sword that's going to defeat the beast is the sword of the word. We come in here and it says they, they took the sword. And <clears throat> who can fight against it? And, and um, it, it said that, um, and they worship the dragon for he'd been given authority of the beast. And they worship the beast who is like the beast and who can fight against it. And <clears throat> it was allowed to make war on the saints and, and to conquer them. But the thing that will conquer the beast is the sword of the word of God, not, not the sword of man. So as, as we come in there, um, we, we have to see that God alone is worthy of our allegiance. God alone is worthy of our worship. And as we come in here, this beast is, is working to conquer all things and come in. And so it's clear here that this beast was allowed to make war on the saints. It said that he made war on the saints. It says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. And, and then he goes on to say, you know what? If you're going to be taken into captivity, it's going to happen. He's going to persecute the people of God. The people of God will experience difficult things. So it's clear <clears throat> that this happens. And the final battle here will be a gl global government opposed to God and his people. You know, it's like one world order type thing you hear. It, this is what it is. It's saying that there will be something that opposes all of the people of God. And we're called to persevere and stand firm regardless of how difficult it becomes in verses 9 and 10. In, in chapter 13, 
verses 9 and 10, it says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with sword, with sword he must be slain. Here's a call for the endurance of the faith of the saints. So when, when government aligns itself with God, we are called to submit to that. We are called to submit. In other words, we're called to pay taxes. In Romans 13, it says, you know, if we owe taxes, we're to pay taxes. We are to obey the laws of our land that are given to us. God provides a government to provide social order. Um, We have laws like you're not supposed to drive 100 miles an hour on K Beach Road. That's a good law, right? We should follow that. And when people don't, they should pay the penalty for that because it, it puts others in danger. So these are things, but... But they're just basic stuff. It's, it's different. But if government tells us that we can't worship, we can't obey that. And, and this is where John is going with this. He's saying, you know what? You're being told by your government what you can and cannot do when it comes to worship, when it comes to worshiping God, when it comes to gathering together as a church to worship God, when, when it calls us into this and so this is what um what what we see in acts 5 29 peter and the apostles answered we must obey god rather than men we must obey god not men so this is where this is coming so they chose to suffer rather than to compromise their faith and and religious liberty is is very important it's a very very important thing as a matter of fact if you study baptist history this is one of the things that's that's huge as you go back is religious liberty and not just our religious liberty to worship as Christians, but to protect the religious liberty of other groups and their freedom to worship whatever, whatever they choose, whether it's our God or not. And you think, well, that's that. You know, we, we want everybody to be like us. We do, but we don't want to coerce that on them with force. We want to win them with the word of God and, and the love of Christ. So there's a big difference as, as we come in there. So this comes in and says that the government's job is, is, is to do the things that God calls it to do for us, for our well-being, not to do things for its own well-being. And, and another way of putting that, um, if you come in today and, and you look around, think about leaders, global leaders, do they use their position of leadership for their own personal gain and they oppress their own people? This is, this is the beast that comes up and, and that we see rising up out of the sea with the ten horns and the seven heads. And, and, you know, you knock off one head, another one pops up. You can't kill it with the sword. You can only kill it with the word of God. So this is where he's coming. And then he goes on in verses 11 through 18 and says then I saw another beast rising out of the earth it had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed it performs great signs even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, 
so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And I know the 666, man, everybody's just like, yes, we're going to get to talk about it today. And, and we will at the end. Um, so we'll, we'll go to that, but just hang on to those three sixes, you know. Um, you've, you've got them. They're just not quite sevens, but they're there. So I'll, I'll drop it right there. Um, beware, but in verses uh, 11 through 18, you've got the beast coming from the land. you know what the beast coming from the land is? It's the church. It's church. It's religion. Beware of the church worshiping the state. Be very aware of any church that is worshiping the government. When the church moves in with the state, problems arise. Problems come. Because together, they can absolutely crush people. So the second beast is from the land, and, and what he does, he basically endorses or supports everything from the first beast. What, what we see here, it says that um, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. He's a false Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit drives us to worship Christ, uh, God the Father and God the Son, the second beast drives the people to join forces with the state, and with Satan. So this is where we, we come in. So he uses religious, political, and economic forces to persecute the church and deceive unbelievers. This is what can happen when you come in there. The state can use, they can use religious things, they can use economic things, they can use political things to deceive people, to persecute people. And, and this beast is the false prophet. He's wreaking havoc on God's people, and he's deceiving unbelievers. But, but the thing to remember is the end will not go well for him. You know, when, when we come in the middle, go, man, this is just really a downer today. Um, just remember, remember, the beast, ultimately, he is thrown into the lake of fire forever. The battle has been won. And, and this is what John is being told, and he's saying, you know what, you, you think this is all that's going on? He said, I want you to know, God is sovereign, God is in control God has everything in his hand. And so as we come in, um, this is what we see. And it says in, in Revelation 19, 20, it says, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had, not, who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So we need to remember that, that this is what the end is, is that the beast is defeated. He is absolutely defeated. Satan is defeated. And, and in John's day, as we come in, this beast that's coming up from the earth for him, it's the religious establishment of the day. It would be, if we go back to those churches and, and you see in, um, in Smyrna and Philadelphia, they are crushed. They are being crushed by the religious political establishment of the day because of their faith. So emperor worship began with cities that were vying to build temples to Caesar. 
Emperor worship didn't happen because some guy said, hey, I think I want to be God. I want you to worship me as God. It happened because the cities were, these cities, states, they were trying to curry favor with these emperors. So they began to build temples to them. And they began to, to stroke their ego and pump them up and make them think how great they were. And if you think about that, it's really easy for someone to go in to a public position for right reasons, and then all of a sudden to get puffed up and think, man, I'm, I'm really something here. And, and I've got, you know, I, I, I've got a lot I can gain from this and move from one space into another. And when you move into that other space, and, and when our leaders are not held accountable, and when they are not, they are not placed where we're um, in, a, in, in, in a situation where they understand that, you are there to serve God, not to serve yourself. And, and that sounds really just like, yeah, good luck with that. Look, they did it in the first century. They changed the world. Those, those little bitty groups of Christian people, they changed the world. I mean, like, like a third of the global population is Christian, uh, identifies as Christian today from this little bitty ragtag group of persecuted, beaten down poor people. So it's not the sword that conquers, it is the word that comes from the, from the mouth of the Lord. It is the sword of the Lord. And, and so this is who it was. Um, emperor worship began with cities vying to build temples to Caesar. And by the time of Domitian, the emperor was claiming to be God. By the time of Domitian, he claimed to be God. And... <clears throat> If we go back to the seven churches, we see how emperor worship and the false worship of cultural gods had influenced the churches. It had this influence within the churches. Thyatira compromised the truth of God for financial gain. They were all love and no truth there. They're like, you know what, we just love everybody and we're not going to say anything to rock the boat. We're not going to say anything that would offend anyone we're just going to mind our own business, and we're going to continue to make money. Sardis was lulled into complacency in their faith. They weren't growing spiritually, and they felt no need. They had no need to grow spiritually. They, they figured they had everything they needed. They were comfortable. They had uh, freezers that were full. They had bank accounts that were full. They had retirement accounts that were full. They had no need for anything else. They became complacent in their faith. They weren't growing spiritually. They felt no need to grow spiritually. No urgency to share the gospel. They were just living life. Laodicea flamed out a long time ago. Jesus just said, you know what? They're just like lukewarm nothing. They're dead. They were spiritually dead because they abandoned the things of Jesus for the things around them. The guilds of the day required allegiance to the patron gods. If you didn't um, <clears throat> show your allegiance to the patron gods, it meant financial ruin. It meant that economically you would be crushed. If you didn't take a pinch of incense and burn it and say Caesar is Lord, then you would be um, called out for that and you would be persecuted Philadelphia and Smyrna refused to bow down to the state or to false religious leaders, and they were persecuted. So we began to see this stuff pop up, and, and, and you can come and go back to it, 
But if we come in today, John would have seen this very clearly. He would have seen it all just like, oh, yeah, I see this going on. I see it happening in the religious industry around me. I see it, it um, coming, and I see that people have left the true word of God for something else, for a lie. And I see that what that does to our community. I see what it does to our people. I see what it does to our world. I see the global impact of that. And, and we can come in today and ask ourselves the question, what are our gods? What are our gods? In church, what are our gods here? And I'll tell you what, one of the reasons I've done this series on Revelation is because we have a problem. We have a problem. You know what our problem is? Our problem is political. It's political because we believe that politics are going to solve our problems. And it's not. And we get so jacked up and worried about our politics that we forget Folks, we forget Jesus is on the throne. Write it down. Write it down. Tell the person next to you. Jesus is on the throne. Biden's not my God. I said it. Okay, I just said it. Jesus is on the throne. Trump is not my God. He ain't the donkey or the elephant. He is God Almighty. He is sovereign. He is in control. And there ain't nothing, 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 nothing that he is going to do to the people of God that God does not allow. And our God is sovereign. He is the God who earlier, he, we said, came and made propitiation for our sins, the most beautiful thing that's ever happened in this world. And that's what this book of Revelation is about. It is a book of comfort, a book of hope, a book of victory, saying God is on the throne. You are not going to change the world in any shape, form, or fashion outside of the sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Anytime we get in bed with the government... We become the beast. That's just pure and simple. It's not my words. Those are God's words. He is the beast that comes from the earth. He is the one who does that. Now, being involved in civic things is important. Voting is important. Christian people being in office is important. We need to support them. But we need to understand that the government is not the church. It is not the church. Look, I could stop right here and I could have Regina and Kenny come up and say, let me tell you about the government. You know, they have worked in it. They've been involved in it in all kinds of stuff. Um, I, could, I could bring other people in and they could go, look, I've served in, in, in political office and let me tell you this, 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 and this. I can tell you all the dark underside of it and everything else. And, and, and this is what I, I am really trying to accomplish as I serve there. I'm not smashing politicians or anything else. I'm saying that we have to keep a clear, clear line between Jesus and the government because Jesus is the one that we want to rule the government, not the government ruling the church. You see, if we fail to remember that God is sovereign, 
and we think we can slay the beast with a boat, we're suckers. We're suckers. You will not slay the beast with a vote. You will slay the beast with the testimony of the word of God and the testimony of your mouth and the testimony of your life lived out for Jesus. That's one. That's one thing. Another one is sex. There's another one. That's another one that, that we have um, <clears throat> allowed to mess up the church. Porn is destroying our witness and our ability to enjoy healthy sexual lives. You see, when, when we come in and we talk about sex, you know, man, he's off the rails today. Look, when we talk about that, God designed it. He designed it for a purpose. And he designed it to be a beautiful thing between a husband and a wife, private, personal, intimate, not to be gazed upon by other people or gawked at or talked about or shared or perverted. And it affects a very, very significant number of Christians. Probably the percentage of teens it affects inside the church is off the charts. It would make you get on your face and weep. As a matter of fact, I heard one college minister say, I assume every male who comes in my office is addicted to porn. Every single one. Now just marinate on that a minute. That's how often it takes place. Why? Why? Because... These things destroy lives wholesale. And you go, well, what does that have to do with it? It's because we as God's people have to refuse. We have to refuse to celebrate, tolerate, accept any sexual expression that God considers blasphemous. And that is any any sexual expression outside of a man and a woman inside of the confines of marriage. Anything else is out of bounds. And we have to stand firm there and understand that. And we have to hold that standard. And why do we hold that standard? Not because we're a bunch of prudes. Quite the contrary, because we want that to be the best we want it to be what God created and intended it to be, and it can't be if we paint outside the lines. It can't. And I'll jump into that maybe when we finish Revelation, but that'll be the next topic. But, but our government is participating in forcing religious groups to endorse their godless philosophy. Our government is wanting to force Christian people to endorse their godless philosophy. For instance, you might have read about bakers, florists, photographers who have made headlines and been publicly called out for refusing to participate in homosexual unions. 
That's the beast coming up. In the form of coercion, the way that they coerce that is through economics. You see, you destroy them economically. And if you destroy someone economically, you can force them to make a choice. It's harsh, isn't it? But I mean, really, what's the difference between destroying someone economically and crushing them physically? Very little. One will do what the other does. You see, either you burn a pinch of incense to Caesar or Caesar will destroy your business and take away your finances. You see, there are churches who've embraced this false god and they fail to stand on the truth of God. They have a rainbow flag out in front of their church um, and, and so forth. They don't know Jesus. Look, folks, they don't know Jesus. They don't. You cannot, the church cannot get in bed with the government. The church cannot cannot endorse the things of the world without being the Holy Spirit to Satan. This is what he is. This is what this beast is. This beast is just like the Holy Spirit of God drives us to Jesus, drives us to God, drives us to righteousness. This beast here, this false church, this false witness, drives people to worship the beast and worship the things of this world. Thyatira is the example in John's days. Thyatira was all love and no truth. They failed to stand on the truth of God. Look, in, in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, Paul said, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, truth divides us. Truth divides us. It is the great divider. Because it forces us to choose sides. We either choose the side of God or we choose the side of the beast. But you can't have your foot on both. You see, beware of false teachers. Beware of false doctrines. Beware of it. Look, check me out every single week. I pray that you do. You check it out according to the word of God. Because truth is important. It's more important than our church. It's more important than our country. Truth is a person. The person of Jesus. And truth is what brings us home. Beware false teachers. Beware false doctrines. Just because it sounds good and it makes you feel good doesn't mean God is in it. And if God's not in it, you know what it does? It destroys us a little bit at a time. Satan, the great accuser, you know what? He's going to suck you into that stuff and he's going to say, hey, you know, it's really not as bad as, as what, what, what they're saying. Look, that old guy up there, he's just an old knothead. He doesn't know anything. He's so old, he had never done anything. He knows nothing. Don't listen to him. He's just so foolish, old man. I can introduce you to some foolish old men and they can tell you some stuff. 
and they'll tell you about every bad decision and every pain and every hardship that came out of it. Because the thing that Satan doesn't tell you is it may be cheap and easy now, but the pain that it causes is real. In Matthew 7, 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You see, our response for a culture must be honest. We have to have an honest response for a culture, not a condemning response. There's a difference. There's a difference. The church standing firm on Jesus and the word is a church that loves the people around it and it serves them. It's a church that loves, who loves the people around it and it serves the people around it. Look, I don't expect people outside of the church to hold to my beliefs or my morals or anything else. I don't. But inside the church, it's a different game, right? We're to hold one another to the standard of the word of God and to live that out. And, and we do that by loving people we love the people around us, it doesn't mean that we embrace their sin and participate in it. It means that we live lives that reflect the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus, the life of Christ to the people around us, and that they are drawn to that as they see what it does in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in our community, and, and, and how it makes us work and respond to people, and, and on and on and on and on. It, it just works like a ripple out, and, and they're to be drawn to that. So as we come up, um, you know, how, how can we do that? You know, inside of the church, some of the things, we have Easter coming up. What a great opportunity we have to reach people with the gospel. This is what we'll share on Easter Sunday. We won't talk about the beast coming up out of the earth or whatever. We'll take a break, you know, or chaining him and throwing him in the lake of fire. That might be a little bit overwhelming for people who don't ever go to church. But if they come back the next week, we'll jump right back in. Hey, we figure, you know, if you come in and, and, and um, they're, well, I'm not, but, but, uh, <clears throat> but anyway, you know, Easter's coming up. Look, sign up to be involved. The stuff that Dave shared earlier on the board, sign up to be involved. Sign up to serve. We have a, a brunch up there. It's a great time. You think, well, that's, look, a lot of people will come in there who they don't come to church hardly ever, maybe never come. They'll come in, they'll have brunch, they'll sit down at the table. Be intentional. Look over and find some of those people that you don't know. Go sit down and actually get to meet them and talk to them. Come in. Don't hang out in the foyer on Easter Sunday. Come in here. All the people who are visitors, they pass through there, through the crowd, and they come find a seat. Come in and talk to them. Introduce yourself. They're nice people. And, and, and just come introduce yourself to them and, and say, hey, it's glad to have you here. And if they go, well, I've been coming here for 15 years, so that's fine. I don't know you. Glad to meet you, second service person. Late sleeper. <clears throat> I'm, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to curse the early sleepers. Um, <clears throat> but uh, anyway, look, come in and, and, and do that. Think about it. Serve, bring food. Um, help clean up, park on the back row, not the front row, you know, not up next to the side. Park on the back so the people who are visiting can park well. Um, sit up to the front because, you know, people who don't come to church, the back seats in church, it's not like a concert where the front seats are premium. Notice the front seats are empty right now. I know that all of you on Easter are going to be sitting up front. 
I just know that you're going to be moving up to the front saying, yes, I'll do that. And there are a handful of people who, you know, they, they, sitting down is hard for them and they need to stand up during. So they sit in the back. Um, they have to go out or whatever. That, that's fine. That's cool. Never bothers me. Um, but, uh, but, but move up front. Introduce yourself to guests. VBS, great, oppor- great opportunity. Great opportunity. Sign up. Diane will hook you up right after, right after the service. I mean, she'll go out right now with you. You won't probably. But, um, but sign up. Get involved in that because you know what? There are children in our community who don't know Jesus. They don't go to church anywhere, but their parents will drop them off so they can get a free night. And we have the privilege to tell them about Jesus. More, more people come to Christ in, in, in that form than probably any other. What a great privilege and opportunity. We see these as things we have to do. Look, they're not have-tos. They're privileges and honors and joys to be a part of. If you have never been able to lead, if you, you, know, you say, I, I want to know about evangelism, I want to be able to share my faith with someone, come to Bible school. Look, you will have a captive audience and you will have success. Promise, guarantee. Great opportunity. Children's Sunday school, children's workers, always in need, always in need. And we would love to involve you there, men as well as women. You know, it's, it's an opportunity to make an impact beyond your imagination. Look, I can tell you people who have made an impact on my kids and they invested in their lives. And, and that's the important thing in a church family is that we don't just invest in our own kids, but we invest in other kids. Because sometimes it's really good for someone besides mom and dad to be able to reinforce what they're hearing at home. We have a lot of opportunities to serve outside the walls. The uh, pregnancy center, food bank, uh, Compass, Friendship Mission, Freedom House, Set Free, Love Inc., Arctic Barnabas. Those are just a few. Those are all places that we support. Um, you look and say, well, you, you can take that Go trailer, that Go ministry trailer. It's got a bounce house in it. When your kid has a birthday party, man, my kids would love that. When they were little, if we'd, we'd add something like that. But um, we had to rent the dinosaur fun jump, you know. But uh, you can do this one for free. It's got, every, it's got a generator. It's got grills. It's got all kinds of stuff. You can set it up and, and bring the whole neighborhood over. When they ask, you know, wow, how'd you do this? Go, well, you know, our church. Our church believes in families. Our church believes in, in, um, in, in helping people. Our church believes in being a part of people's lives. Opportunity to share the gospel. You can pray for people by name. You can pray for them by name to know Jesus. You can help people in the name of Christ. We can pray for opportunities to share our faith. We can invest in others unconditionally as Jesus invests in us. Jesus modeled suffering and sacrifice. I saw one by the throne, a lamb who had been slain. Suffering and sacrifice. That's Jesus. That's who he is, and this is where it's coming in. And you see, you see the dichotomy between power of this world and real power. 
Real power is suffering and sacrifice. Real power that comes from God is a power that loves unconditionally. Real power is a power that is not doing things for its own good, but doing it for the good that God intended. You see, we are his church. We're founded on unchanging eternal truth. God is on the throne. He invites us to be a part of redemption history. He promises us the ultimate victory and that nothing can steal us from him. And now I know you want to know what 666 ends before we end, right? You thought, oh man, he, he just got off on a roll and forgot. I didn't. Okay, just real quick, I'm going to tell you this is where, I, this is, this is, this is where I'm going to land with 666. 666, um, um, there, there are a couple other things, but I'm, I'm not into the number end of it, trying to you know, add the letters up and everything else because you've got to do weird stuff with that. By the way, just so if you don't know, I have an engineering degree. I'm really good with numbers. So all the number stuff, I, I can roll. I can roll numbers with letters. I can, I can do the pyramid thing and all that stuff, but I don't think that's right. I don't think that's, I think that if you come in, historically, seven was the number of perfection. Seven is the number of completion. There are seven spirits of God. There are seven churches. There are seven lampstands, blah, 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 blah. Coming in here, seven had a reason. Six is just not quite there. Six is not quite there. When we're, when we come in, um, Six is one short of seven. It's one short of perfection. And the rabbis thought of it as incompleteness. And that day, the, rabbi, the Jewish rabbi said, the number six is just incomplete. And to say something three times means it's perfect. And, and to say this is that the number of man, he is perfectly incomplete. The number of the beast is perfect incompletion. He will never be. He will never satisfy. He will never do because only Jesus can do that. And when someone is marked with the beast, they're marked with his character. We're marked with the Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It means we have the character of God. We've been given the Spirit of God. We've been given the mind of Christ. And when you are marked with the beast, you have his character in his mind. It's incomplete. When someone is marked by the beast, they have his character. It's in the fiber of their being. It's down in the very depths of who they are, as is when we're marked by Christ. And <clears throat> I, I think I like the way Beal put this in um, his commentary. He said, the forehead represents the ideological commitment, and the hand is the practical outworking of that commitment. The mark of the beast on the forehead and the, and, and the hand. It's ideological and it's practical. It's in our brains and it's in our feet. It's in the way we do and it's in the way that we act. You see, the best thing that religion's ever going to give you is sixes. That's all it's going to give you. The best thing this world can give you is sixes. And the beast is perfectly incomplete. And so are we apart from Christ. You see, Jesus rings us up to seven. Jesus rings us up to perfection. Jesus rings us up to completeness. Jesus 
is on the throne. He is the victor. And all of the things, you know, you, you, you squirm over that we talked about earlier. You go, yeah, I know, but, or I messed up here, or I've already, you know, painted outside the lines, or I've blah, 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 whatever. You know what? That's incompleteness. And that's the beast pointing out all of your incompleteness and pointing out my incompleteness and everybody else's incompleteness in the room. But here's what Jesus did. He conquered the beast. He conquered sin and death. He paid the price for our sin. He gives us the power to live holy lives. And nothing will ever take us away from him. We belong to him. We belong to him. You don't steal from Jesus. Because you can't. The beast cannot steal from Jesus. He can only have what he is given. If you go back and you come back through there, everywhere you're going to see, it was given. It was given. It was given. He didn't take anything. Because he can't take anything. So as we come in today, we, as God's people, are being called to worship at the throne of God, to worship in spirit and truth, to worship in the word of God, to spend time with him, to come to him daily, to love him more, to desire him more, and to allow him to come in and fill us and strengthen us and empower us to go out and change our world. You see, that's how God changes the world. He doesn't change us through governments. He changes it through his people. It's happened before, it'll happen again. And he's asking us to be part of it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we praise you that Jesus is on the throne. We praise you on the throne, Father, and we praise you for the victory that is so sure and so real and so there. And we pray today, Lord, that you would help us to focus on you, to focus on your word, and be faithful to you in everything that you give to us. Father, we pray that as we come into Easter this month, Lord, that we would see it as the greatest opportunity that you're going to give to us in the next few days to share the gospel, that we'll take advantage of every single opportunity that you place with us. Father, we pray that as a church, you'll strengthen us, you'll strengthen our love for one another, you'll strengthen the way that we use your word to, to go out into our community, to, to influence people's lives and to show them the love of Christ, that we'll love the people who don't know you and that they'll be drawn to you. Father, we pray that we would be a people who are faithful to you, faithful to your word, and we pray, Lord, that you will use us to change our world, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.